Thank you. Thank you, Deva, and uh, praise team and choir and orchestra. It was uh, phenomenal. That was wonderful. I love that, that song. Some songs are just meant to last forever. I think that might be uh, one of them, like with amazing grace as we sing it uh, in heaven. So today we are studying the great book of Revelation. If you're a first-time guest today, we welcome you right on into our study. Uh, we've only been studying this book for a few weeks, so you haven't you haven't missed a, a lot. No, we've been studying it for a few months, going on a couple of years now. So, uh, but we're delighted that you're here. We're in chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 8 is our text today. And whenever you come to um, any passage of Scripture in the Bible, and, and you know there are many different genres or types of literature contained within Holy Scripture. You have some of the more didactic genre, which deals more with teaching, um, instruction, you have more narratives and stories. You have, of course, you have great poetic literature when you think about Proverbs and the Psalms. And then you have this genre of literature uh, called the prophetic. And I believe that anytime you approach Scripture, you always must have humility. You almost be absolutely, utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to guide us. By the way, He wrote the book. As He inspired the book, we need His illumination to illuminate our minds and our hearts to understand it, but especially so when you come to prophetic uh, literature. Now, there are many prophecies in the Bible. There, somebody said there are over 400 direct prophecies of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and He has fulfilled most of them, and the, the remainder of them to be fulfilled will be uh, in His second advent. But when I come to Revelation 17 and 18, I just have to admit, this is some of the most difficult prophetic passages of Scripture that, uh, that I think is in the entire Word of God. So I come today with great I come with great confidence because I'm dependent upon the Lord, but also come with great humility because there are many ways to interpret this, and God knows the right way. I'm going to share with you uh, different interpretations as we go along, and also, you know, when I was in graduate school, I always especially liked those professors who would tell us the, the different theories of what we are studying. And by the way, when you're in seminary and graduate school, there is a theory for everything. Every passage, there is a multitude of theories, and one of my favorite professors in systematic theology, he would always tell us the various theories except one, and he would always leave us hanging, and we'd say, well, what do you believe? And he never would tell us. He would just kind of let us kind of float out there on our own, but I'm not going to do that. For right or wrong, I'm going to share with you my interpretation of what I believe this amazing text is teaching us today. So we come with great humility and confidence. And John says, after these things… Well, there's a lot in that little prepositional phrase, isn't it? After these things, we've already seen the destruction of what we have coined as the religious Babylon. Then John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. And we haven't seen this angel yet. He is a fierce, powerful, angelic being. Okay, he says, I saw him coming down from heaven having great authority. Mega is the Greek word there. It's where we… Uh, we, we, we translate that enormous or strong, great exousian, which is the word authority, not dunamis, not power, uh, but it's the word exousian, which always has that connotation of, of great authority, not just power, but authority. And the earth was illuminated with this angel's glory. Now, picture that in your mind's eyes. John is exiled on the island of Patmos around A.D. 95. He's about 95 years of age, and he is in this little rock quarry of a, of a hole, basically, and, and God just speaks to him and reveals to him what I believe he's revealing is the future of the world. And in this vision, when we come to chapter 18, he sees this, 
this magnificent, majestic, angelic being descending from the heavens, and he has this great radiance about him, and he's about to speak. And he cried out mightily with a, with a phone, with a loud, boisterous voice, and he said, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed pornea, is the Greek word. Obviously, we get words like porno and pornography and so forth. Committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her strenuous. Now, it's an interesting word. It's only used one time in the entire New Testament as a noun. This word strenuous has to do with exorbitant, I mean lavish, outlandish wealth and jewels and just an enormity of influence and power. And then John says, I heard another voice from heaven. Now, another is the Greek word alos. It, it, you can translate it another of the same kind, and that's very instructional. John says, I, I saw another angel of the same kind. I mean, man, God's got some angels, guys. I mean, they're not little fat, chubby babies, you know, with wings flying around. No, no, that, that's not an angel. This is a, let me show you that again. You know, some of y'all wanted to see that, amen. Uh, no, this is a fierce, powerful, created being. These angels are created for God's glory, and they're also created to execute His will and especially His wrath. And so I, I heard another voice from heaven, and He said, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her being Babylon's plagues. For her sins have, a good translation of, of this word is to pile up or glue together up into heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The angel says, render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her, in the measure that she glorified herself. Now church, please underscore that. Uh, there's a lot of ambiguity. There's some things that we don't understand, but this one we clearly understand, that God in present time, in past time, in future time, God always resists the proud, the arrogant, those who say, I, I am above all else. God sets Himself in full battle array against arrogance. And this woman is the personification of arrogance. She lives luxuriously, and in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow because she says in her cardia. Now, that's where we get this word cardiology and so forth, but really it's the seat of you, who you really are in your emotional being. I am a queen. And, and listen to this now. now get, get the arrogance in her voice. I sit as queen. I am no widow, and I will never see sorrow." And then it closes this pericope, this, this narrative, this paragraph of where we're going to stop our study in verse 8, because I believe it, it's, one, it's one general thought. Therefore, now always know why it's there, what it's there for. Therefore, as a result of her 
fornicating, of her idolatry, of her immense uh, arrogance, therefore her plagues are coming. This same angel says the plagues will come in one day, in one moment of time, death, mourning, and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Chapter 17, we looked at what we called religious Babylon, the harlot religious Babylon. Chapter 18 is, a, is, a, is another animal, another beast. Uh, I think it's best to deduce from chapter 18 that this, this woman, if you will, this Babylon is more of a political, socio-economic, commercial entity. Let me say that again. It's more a commercial, socio-economic, political entity. Now, the Antichrist, future tense, he, he now, in these last three and a half years, he has absolute unequivocal control. He has dismantled that, that modicum of religion, that apostate religion. He has done away with it. Remember now, his ten king confederation, and he, the future world re- ruler, has done away with this apostate. Now remember, this is that syncretistic amalgamation of all religions of the world. He has destroyed that, so now everybody worships him, and that's the way he wants it. Everybody bows down to him, and now he, he has... He is completely in control, even of the nations of the world. Now, and this is my persuasion, this is my interpretation, that these things have not yet happened. He said, well, wait a minute, Brother Dan. I respectfully disagree with you because the Bible has a lot to say about Babylon. And you are absolutely right. There's one other city in the entire Bible that is mentioned more than Jerusalem, and guess which city it is? It's Babylon. Over 260 times... Babylon is used. You go back to the Tower of, anybody? Babel in Genesis 11, and you come all through the prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then you come to Revelation, and Babylon represents usually that which is in opposition to God. Remember the Babylonian Empire in AD, uh, in BC, 586 BC, they go in and destroy Jerusalem, and the Jews, God's people, go into the Babylonian captivity. And, and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they are, they're, they're prophesying, and they're saying, yes, we're in captivity now, but there's coming a day when God will judge you, O Babylon. And He did. In 539 BC, Cyrus and the Medes and the Persians captured and destroyed Babylon of old, but not completely. And the reason we know that is because John sees a whole other entity of Babylon, which combines all the rebellion, all the antagonism, all this humanism, all this secularism, all of this atheism. It's all amalgamated and compiled into one at the end time, and God will come through again, and He will judge this Babylon. Now, that's my interpretation. Some of you agree, some of you will will disagree. Some of you see Revelation as a book in the past and it's already happened or it's it's happening now, but I still see it primarily as a book of the future. So there's four things I want to share with you today from Revelation chapter 18. First of all, there's this angelic appearance and an angelic announcement. And that's in verses one, uh, 1 and 2, and we've looked at it pretty, I think, pretty thoroughly as we read through the Scriptures. Uh, again, this is no little little baby with, with chubby arms and wings. This is this fierce, awesome angel that God has sent from the heavens. And this angel comes to make 
not only in an appearance, now, now watch this, if I'm reading the Scripture correctly, everybody can see this being. I mean, this, this angelic being, he illuminates. I mean, he comes, drops down out of the heavens, and, and I'm of the persuasion that everybody can see this like the sun, okay? Everybody can see the sun in the heavens. Everybody's going to be able to see this. But this angel is not just to make an appearance. He's to make an announcement. And the announcement is Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So let's go to point number two. Let's look at Babylon. Babylon's demise and Babylon's description. Now, you say, Brother Danny, you, you, you got your words uh, mixed up, but I didn't. Notice that I used the, um, the adjective demise before I used the, the adjective description. You know why I did that? Because that's what the text did. We want to be very textual driven in our hermeneutics, interpretation, and especially in our homiletics, our preaching. What does the text say? Well, the text says, she's fallen, she's fallen. She has already fallen, fallen. This is called a proleptic arist in the Greek New Testament. You say, well, who in the world is that? What kind of animal is that? Here's what this means. It means you can speak of it with such definite conclusions. You can say it of something that's already in the past, even though it has not happened, and it's still to remain in the future. That's called a proleptic arist. The, the angel said, she's already done. She's fallen and fallen and destroyed, and, and yet it hasn't happened yet, but in God's economy, in God's mind, it's like it's already happened. Now, what does that mean? Is fallen, is fallen? Why would John record the angel saying it twice? Now, we've already read this in chapter 14. She's fallen, she's fallen. And here's, here's my take on it. I think it's for emphasis, number one, but I also think it may have to do with what Babylon really exists, what, what it is. I believe it is Babylon, Babylon, it's the religious Babylon and the commercial, political, socioeconomic Babylon. Now, the former, I mean, she has been destroyed by the Ten King Confederation of the Antichrist, and now all that's left is this guy and his kingdom. And the Bible's very clear in its demise, okay, it says its demise, it's going to be destroyed, and now it begins to describe it. So let's walk through the text this morning. We'll uh, a lot to cover, but we're already in point two. How about that? Point one was fast, wasn't it? So we're moving, you know, and now we're into, now we're into point two. Okay, so let's look at it, the, the de description. It says in verse two that ba Babylon will be a dwelling place of demonic spirits, quote, a prison for every foul spirit. Now, that is synonymous with this habitation of, of demons, if you will. Now, it's interesting that in Revelation chapter 9, in the fifth trumpet judgment, and in Revelation chapter 12, the Bible, I, I believe, talking about in a future time, I mean, the, the hordes of hell, the demonic beings are going to come to earth, and they're all going to condescend where the epitome of hell himself, the Antichrist, is dwelling this Babylon, and they are going to inhabit that place. Now, again, I still believe it's a place. It could be the Babylon, Baghdad. It could be a city in Iraq. I don't know that for sure. It could be a city somewhere else, but there's coming a one-world religion, a one-world government with a very dynamic, charismatic personality, and he's going to rule the world, and yet only for a short, short time. One writer says, God will, so to speak, gather all the rotten eggs into one basket before disposing them. It also says that Babylon will be a cage for every unclean and hated bird. 
Uh, I read one commentary this week. I kind of chuckled when I read it because I'm thinking, okay, what does that mean? It's going to be a place. Now, he's saying it's full of demons. It's full of, and one commentary said, think vultures and bats. I was like, okay, I got that. I got it. Birds of carrion. You know, you know what that means? Carrion, C-A-R-R-I-O-N. It means birds of prey, those kind of birds that eat that which is already uh, deceased, like a, like a vulture, if you will. And so this place is going to be that kind of place. It's, it's going to be habitated by, habitated by demonic spirits. And, by, and John's just writing for us in this vivid way, whether it's literal or, 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 or metaphorical, he's sharing with us this is going to be a very desolate place, ripe for the very destruction of God. I meant to read this earlier, but I, I think this will help you in your interpretation. Let me read this from John MacArthur. This is a very helpful description of Babylon. The Babylon in view in chapter 18, and I'm quoting, is Antichrist's worldwide commercial empire, which will rule the world during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. God's destruction of commercial Babylon is the theme of chapter 18. It is thus a very somber chapter. It is a requiem, a dirge for the funeral of humanity. With the destruction of the satanic last and greatest human empire, the stage is set for the triumphant return of the Lord Jesus Christ." End of quote. Jeremiah 50, 39 says, therefore, now listen to this, the wild desert beast shall dwell there, talking about Babylon, I'm in Jeremiah now, with the jackals and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be in, uninhabited, it, it shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Verse 3 talks about, uh, okay, then you got all these images of, of birds of prey, birds carry on demonic spirits, and then it says, and she is full. This that word strenuous. She has all this luxury. When, when I read that again this week, and by the way, I think I've studied this, <laughs> I've studied this passage so much, I got, I got so much, and my, my little mind can only contain so much. I, but when I was reading it, I had a lighthearted moment because I thought of Hunger Games. Anybody with me? Anybody seen Hunger Games? Yeah, there's one more coming out. And I thought of Panem, the capital. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. God's truth is just truth. And Panem is going to be, I think, the capital is a pretty good description of what you've got here. You, you remember seeing the movie, there's just this ostentatious wealth and luxurious living. I mean, arrogance, absolute arrogance, because all the 12 districts, 13 districts, they're all way beneath, beneath, beneath the president's snow, which is a type of Antichrist, if you've seen the movies. And so that's what I saw in my mind. I saw this, this penum and this capital as the Bible was describing this Babylon. Only difference is... Um, one is a creation of a lady's mind. The other one is actually going to come to earth in the form of this Babylon. Okay, so uh, verse 3, it talks about um, the kings of the earth. I know this is kind of graphic, and I kind of wish I wish we had children's church every Sunday because of verse 3. Because it talks about the kings of the earth have committed, I'm just going to use the word pornea, okay? Y'all know what that is. Pornea with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her, of her luxury. And this is what I, I, I've come to the conclusion. I spent a lot of time thinking and ruminating and chewing over verse 3. What does that mean? And here, here's some of my thoughts on it. In order to ensure an economic security, the nations and the kings of this earth will allow themselves to be seduced by this Babylon's power and promises. 
The future Babylon, now these are just my words, no real scholarly, just, just me. This future Babylon will be the economic hub or center of the world, and nations will do whatever she asks. Sell their economic souls, if you will, in order to be protected from ruin. And so you have this Babylonian idolatrous seduction of nations and rulers, and she has sway over the heads of state, the kings of the earth, the presidents of the world. She has them connected, and they are pornea with her. They're in bed with her, if you will, and they're giving her their primary allegiance to the neglect of their own states, to their own empires, and to their own countries, if you will, because everything flows through this one world leading powerful economy that's yet to come. So that's Babylon's description, if you will, and her demise, or demise and her description. Now, just like God in verse 3, I love this. I'm sorry, verse 4. Uh, uh, some thoughts. Have you ever been preaching and have a thought and say, should I say that or not? And you go, yeah, happens to me all the time, brother. I'm preaching all the time, and I have a thought. So let, let me not go with that thought because it may take me a little longer to complete it. I would say see it in the notes, but it's not in the notes. It's in my little mind. So anyhow, it's just like God in the midst of judgment, in the midst of harsh, punitive retribution. God is just. God is holy. God is awesome. God is mighty. And, and by the way, we, we really don't hear a lot about that in American Christianity, do we? I'm, I'm kind of going there. We, we, we don't hear that much about God's justice and God condemning sin. No, we just want to camp out on, on the love and the compassion. But here, get this. Mm, get this. The love and the compassion and the forgiveness are all the more great when you understand the justice and the power and the awesomeness of God, okay? So here it is, his invitation and his warning. The invitation goes like this in verse 4. He says, and I heard this other angel come out of her, this aorist imperative verb, get out of there, my people, lest you… Now watch this. I'm in verse 4. You may want to circle this word. It's the word share. It's the Greek word soon koinonia. Does that sound familiar? Koinonia. Unless you fellowship and share in her sins, get out of there, lest you also receive of her plagues." So it's like God is telling the, the church that will exist in that time, though they will be very small in number, they are going to be there in the capital, if you will, and God is telling them, I'm about to throw down the hammer, you better get out of there. And when I destroy them in an hour, in a day, in a moment of time, what, and I think MacArthur is right, what God is doing, He's disposing of this, and then there's going to be this one last great army to go against the one who is judging them, Jesus Christ, and Jesus comes and He reigns victorious. But it's just like God to do this. And one writer I read this week, he said, you know, compassion rather than condescension for sinners is the only appropriate posture for a believer. And I really like that. Because if I'm not careful, I can, like many of you, I can get very legalistic, I can get very pharisaical, and I can get, you, you did all that, you deserve all you're going to get. And yet I read this writer, of all people, Paige Patterson, who people believe he's just this ferocious, mean-spirited person, he's the one that said that. 
He's the one that said, yes, in, the, in light of God's imminent, preeminent judgment on sinners, our posture as believers always must be one of, of humility and not condescension. Well, that's what you're going to get. Here, here's what I take from that is, if this is true, and God really will judge, then the greatest thing that you and I can do is tell as many people as we can and is have as much compassion as we can. God's invitation and His warning. Finally is His fierce judgment of Babylon, and this will be verses 5 through 8, okay? So God's fierce judgment, and it is fierce. Verse 5, the Lord tells John why Babylon will be judged. Her sins have reached unto heaven. Now, the Greek word there is kalao, and it literally means to glue together or to come together as a mass. And I can't help but think that John has in mind Genesis chapter 11, when they stacked brick on top of brick and they built their Tower of Babel. They wanted to reach up into the heavens and have their own religion, have their own God, and that's what you see happening here in, in verse 5. And so they have, they have come together, they have grown together in their mass. And God, it says, remembers their iniquities. Did you see that in verse 5? It says, for her sins have reached, have glued together to the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. Nope. You don't you just don't get away with it. It seems like, you know, sin just reigns and it, and it, it abounds and, and people are never going to get caught. In fact, I, I watched this fascinating documentary this week about these four men who were expert diamond jewelry robbers and they, they started in Oregon and they went all the way to Miami and they just could not be caught. I mean, they would go in, they said, well, I'm about to get married and show me the best diamonds you got. And they're like, oh, okay, here they are. They'd take them and run. And they amassed $4 million over a number of years, but you guessed it, they got caught, and they always get caught. You get caught. God exposes you, and God remembers her iniquities. Now, I got a good word for you. Listen to this. He said, well, Brother Danny, I got a question. Will God remember my iniquities? It depends. If you die in your sin, and you've never asked Jesus Christ to cleanse you and to forgive you, all of your sins that you've ever committed will come up before you and God in judgment. And God will look at you. He will look at your slate. And it is marred and scarred with fornication, with adultery, with drunkenness, with lying, with arrogance and pride. And God says, are you guilty? And you have to say, man, I'm, just, I'm utterly guilty. I deserve what I get. And God says, that's right, you go to hell. But if you go before Him and say, Lord, I was all of that, but I trusted your son Jesus and his royal blood, and he's cleansed me. Your Bible said that he cleansed me from all my iniquities, and then God says, what sin? <laughs> what, what sin? I don't, I don't know of any sin. Your slate is absolutely clean because you believed in the Son of God who shed his blood so that you might be forgiven. Folks, I don't know if y'all realize that or not. I just gave you the gospel. That is the hope of the world the gospel. Okay, verse 6, boy, this is, this is ominous. Give back to her double what she has given. Now, here there are many theories. Let, let me share some of the theories. They're like, who are they? Who is the angel saying, go and render judgment? Some people believe it's the tribulation martyrs. I don't. Some people believe it's the 
the evil empire is turning against itself and rendering judgment. I don't, I don't agree with that either. What, what I believe is that this angel, now remember chronologic, chronologically, 17 and 18 don't necessarily follow 16. There's, there's a little bit of give and take in here. So I think what's happening is those seven angels, those bold, seven fierce, bold judgment angels are going to execute this judgment of God. And we've already seen it. We've already seen a, a precursor to it in verse, in chapter 16, remember that? And there, uh, in the seventh angel poured out his bowl, and there was noises and thunderings and lightnings and a great earthquake. I think that's what it is. I think in a day, in a moment's time, there'll be a massive earthquake, and Babylon will be fallen, will be fallen. Verse 6 mentions the cup in her hand. By the way, same cup in chapter 17, verse 4, she has in her hand. It's full of sin, full of immorality. It's flowing over, brimming over. In verse 7, I tried to bring this out in the public reading of God's Word, but let me say it again. Verse 7, you begin to understand the precise reason why God will judge her. And it is because of this arrogance, this haughtiness, this pride, and, 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 and it's manifested in her luxurious living. And if she has to step on others in order to promote herself, and by the way, that's always the epitome of pride. Some call it demagoguery, but I just say it's just sheer, utter pride. When you press others down to make yourself look good, she has a PhD in it. That's what she is doing. But one writer says the gloom of bereavement is going to supplant luxury's lighthearted laugh. End of quote. Now in verse 7, God judges her because she says, in my heart, I am never going to be a widow. Now, you know, the Bible talks a lot about widowhood, and if you're a widow here today, and many of you are, you know being a widow is a very humbling thing. It's a harsh thing. It's a hard thing. And some of you have great, like Judy Stone, have great ministries to widows, but being a widow or a widower is a very humble thing. And this woman says, oh, I'm never going to be that. I'll never be humbled, or I'll never have anybody depart from me because I'm going to live forever, and, and I am just here for the world, and nobody can destroy me. And it would almost be like, not even you, God. Look, look at me, how amazing I am. And then it comes, God's swift, abrupt, sudden alacrity of judgment falls, and she meets her, her doom. And you say, well, who is the one behind all this? Well, thank you for asking me, because verse 8 says, Therefore her plagues will come in a day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord God who judges her. When I was studying this, this passage this week and spending a lot of time with it, I, my mind went back to a story, and I want to close with a story. It's a true story. You've got to go back to the 20th century, around the turn of the 20th century. There was a man by the name of John Harper. By the way, this, this man was from Europe. He was converted to Christ when he was 14 years of age. <clears throat> when he was 17, uh, God called him to the ministry, and he pastored two churches, one in Glasgow, Scotland, and the other one in London, England. His name was John Harper. John Harper, with the first church he took, it went from like, I think they had like 20 people in it, and 13 years later, they grew from 20 to 500 people. John Harper's wife passed away, true story. She died, leaving him with a daughter named Anna. And Anna, John Harper, and their cousin was invited to come to Chicago 
And he was invited to come and preach at the famous Moody Church in Chicago. True story. Not only was he coming to preach, uh, Brother Rob Hadley's here today, he was coming to preach in view of a call. And it was pretty much settled that John Harper is our next pastor. Look at him. I mean, God has blessed his ministry, and, and, and I know he's gone through so much heartache with the death of his wife. We believe that he's our man. He's coming over to, uh, from, from London to Chicago. He's going to be our next pastor. Only problem, the boat on which he traveled was called the Titanic. You remember what they said about the Titanic? Not, I mean, God Himself could not, what? Sink her, her. I get real nervous when I hear people say stuff like that. Because it took just one dark, ominous night in an iceberg penetrating the bow, and it, well, you know the story. It fills up with water. John Harper is on that boat. He says these words, all the women, all the children, and all of you without Christ, get on the boats. And a guy came up to him and said, you, you can't do that. You can't be evangelizing all of us. I mean, look at us. We're in a bad way. And John Harper took his life preserver. He took it off of him, and he put it on that guy and said, you need it a lot more than I do, buddy. Put him on the boats, Anna and her cousin. John Harper stayed, and he died in a watery grave. Four years later, four years later, there was a um, Titanic survivor reunion party. Yeah, four years later in Ontario, Canada. And a guy showed up, and this is a I don't think it's really a religious meeting, but this guy shows up and, and people could give testimonies of what has happened in their lives since the sinking of the Titanic and how they, by the way, 1,500 people died and, 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 and many, many did survive. And this one guy from Scotland, he said, I want to tell you all my story. And he told the following story. And it's in the Baptist press, so I know it's true. Okay, so it's, it's in the Baptist press. I, I've researched this, but it is. It really is a true story. Some of you know this story. I want you to remember this story because always in the midst of harsh and pain and judgment, there's always a gracious God willing and able to forgive and save. The Scotsman said, I was out in the water. I was, on, I was on a piece of wood. And this guy floated by me and said these words, Sir, are you saved? <laughs> the guy said, he looked at him, he was like, he was crazy. He says, no, I'm not saved. And the guy floated on by him. That guy was John Harper. A few minutes later, the guy, guy turned this way, and a wave brought John Harper by. He said, are, are you saved now? And the guy said, no, I'm, I'm not saved. I'm not a Christian. And John Harper said, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. John Harper, at that moment, he slipped into eternity as a lifeboat was coming. That Scotsman got on that boat, and he said, I watched John Harper die. And I just want you all to know tonight that I am John Harper's last convert to Christ. And I thought about that story, and I thought, God, in the midst of arrogance, in the midst of death, in the midst of pain and, and suffering, 
there's a scarlet thread of redemption and hope, and it's always attributed to a holy and a loving God. So if I'm mistaken, and all of my exegesis is mistaken, you still have to grapple with this text. If you don't think it means what I said, then what do you think it means? I think you would at least have to agree with this. God will judge, and God will win. Do you know Him? Are you saved? Sir, ma'am, are you saved? Are you saved? Many of you are nodding in the affirmative, yes. Brother Danny, I'm telling you it's the truth. I don't want to stand before God and have Him look up and dial up all of my sins and and I'm just dying my sin and my unforgiveness. Man, I don't want that. I want that. I want that other scenario when it looks all clean and, I'm, and I go scot-free and, I, and I'm forgiven because of Jesus. Tell me that story again. I'll be glad to. Has there been a time in your life when you said, Jesus Christ, Son of God, rain down on me. Pour your royal blood through my spiritual body and cleanse me and wash me clean. Listen, when you do that, God takes your sin, He cast it as far as the east is from the west, it plummets to the depths of the ocean, and the Scripture says He remembers them no more. And I don't know about you, but I did some dumb, dastardly things, especially as a kid, as a teenager, and I'm, and I'm not very proud of those things. Just very sensual and, and very evil things. I'm so glad when I was 19, Jesus Christ said, let me have that. I'll take that. You don't have to earn. You can't earn my forgiveness. I was trying to earn God's forgiveness. If I could just do good and just preach good, and if I could be good, God wouldn't, my good would outweigh, you know, the bad, and, and God would let me into heaven. And God finally broke through that, and he said, you, you can't get to heaven like that. If you could get to heaven by being good, then Jesus should have never died on the cross. Are you listening? You can't get to heaven that way. But you can. I know, I know it's so strange. I know it's such a paradox, but you can. If you'll let the only one who'd ever sinned take your place. And God in His wrath will pour out wrath on Jesus so that you can go scot-free. I know it's, it's outrageous. But it's our only hope for heaven. Have, have you done that? Have you made that transaction? Have you said, God, take my sin. I want to be forgiven, and I want to be in heaven. If you haven't, I encourage you to do it now. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, we'll have our invitation. We invite you to come to Christ. Those of you listening on our broadcast or on the Internet, if you're here live right now, the most important thing I can tell you is right now, this very moment, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Repent of your sins. Trust in Him. When you trust in Him, the Bible says that God demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died, and all who believe on Him will be forgiven. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the boss, and you believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead. He is your Savior, your substitute. You will be saved. I invite you to do that today. Others of you here today, I I, I, I'm telling you, I want to be like John Harper. I, I want to be like these tribulation saints we read about in Revelation. I want to be among those who are faithful to the very end. Even with my last dying breath, I would be sharing with someone the way to heaven. Father, I pray for everybody that's here today. 
Lord, I'm praying for those especially that don't know you, don't have a relationship with you. And God, they've bought into the deception of trying to be good to go to heaven, and that never works. Uh, God, we could never be good enough. Thank you for showing me that. And I thank you for showing many that today. May they trust in you, Jesus. And may they, like these three precious teenage girls a moment ago, may they go to the water and symbolize that. And may they say, as this water washes over my body, so the blood of Jesus has washed over my soul. And I stand clean, forgiven, uncondemned. So, Lord, I pray today be a sweet day of salvation. And also, it would be a day, God, when you add to your church here at Great Hills, you would build us to be a mighty army, Lord, a coming together of men and women and boys and girls and students that will bind our hearts together to be a radiant church that preaches the gospel, that shares the good as well as the tough news and, and ushers the call to salvation. God, we need these people. Lord, we need people to come and be a part of us. So I'm praying that those that you have selected would come and be a part of our church today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? God bless you as you stand. Love this song. Brother Terry's going to lead us. It's called Jesus, Son of God. Right, now, we have, we have counselors and pastors and deacons. We have people up here at the front. If you want to give your life to Christ today, why don't you come right, right this very moment? Just come. Speak to one of these men. You want to become a part of our church? You come. Let us help you. Even now, would you come as we sing?